title of the message today is Three Hearts, One Savior. And in this passage, we're going to see how three very different people get exposed to the gospel and meet Jesus. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Follow along as I read. It says, On the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. And now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. And she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. And this girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul greatly annoyed turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. And then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet with stocks. Pause there and give me your attention. You know, when other Christians find out that I am a pastor and that I work at a church, they often say, boy, it must be awesome to work around Christians all day long. And I tell them, you know what, to be honest, I I say that's actually the hardest part of my job. (laughs) is working around Christians all day long. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the people that that I work with. They are awesome. But what I mean by that statement is is the thing that I miss the most about being, you know, in, in, in being a pastor is not being able to every single day rub shoulders with people that don't know Jesus in the workplace. I mean, that's, that's, um, you know, I used to work in the grocery business and the hotel business. And I loved that. I loved being around people that didn't know the Lord. I love being able to have those conversations. And I will say this though, it wasn't always that way. In fact, there was a time early on when I was working in the world that as a Christian, I, I was kind of on the defensive all the time. I didn't want to get sucked into the ways of the world. I didn't want to compromise my faith. So I 
kind of kept to myself and um, just, you know, was kind of on the defensive. And that all changed one day when my approach of being sort of, and I, and I, I didn't realize this, but the way that I was coming across was very, very self-righteous. And there was a guy that I was really, really trying to reach and I wanted to share the Lord with, and we were becoming friends, but he got turned off, radically turned off by, you know, what he perceived in me was this self-righteous attitude. And it was then that I started to really think about what Jesus said about being salt and light, and primarily being salt. Because you guys know, in order for salt to be effective and do what it's supposed to do, it has to get out of the salt shaker. It has to touch the meat. It has to touch what it's going to affect. And the Lord began to speak to me that, you know, that's what I needed to do. I needed to get out of the salt shaker. I needed to build relationships with people that that don't know the Lord and, and build friendships with them so I could have an opportunity to impact them. And so when I started doing that, when I started, you know, really getting to know the people that I worked with and really befriending them and spending time with them, I ended up having the opportunity to share the Lord with many of them outside of the work environment. And many of them came to Christ. Now, when I share things like this, if, if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, and, or if you're watching online, you're not a believer in Jesus, when you hear things and Christians say things like this, I know you guys get annoyed and you think, why do you Christians always feel like you need to convert me? And a lot of unbelievers feel that way. But you know, this is, this is what I would say. This is how I would, re- would respond to that because it's true. I'm not going to lie. We do want you to meet Jesus, but this is why. We think Jesus is so amazing. We think Jesus is incredible, and we want you to know him. I mean, think about it in this way. If we really truly believe that Jesus was who he said he was, that Jesus left heaven and came to this earth so that he could go and die on a cross to pay the price for our sins because our sins separated us from God. And so he paid the price for our sins and three days later he rose again from the dead proving that he was exactly who he claimed to be, God in human flesh, the only way to experience and escape eternal death and experience eternal life. Why wouldn't we want you to meet him? Why wouldn't we tell you about him? I mean, it would be like this. It would be like us having the cure to cancer and you having cancer and us not sharing that with you. I mean, how upset would you be if that was the case? So you have to understand. I mean, the reason why we we like to talk about Jesus and we want you to meet Jesus is because Jesus is amazing. Jesus is incredible. And Jesus has transformed our lives. And that's what we see here in the text before us today. Three great examples of how Jesus transforms lives. And we're going to look at all three of these conversion stories and see what we can learn from this. The first is a woman by the name of Lydia. And you remember in our study last time that Paul had this desire to go into Asia Minor and and take the gospel, but the Holy Spirit forbade him, wouldn't let him go. So he's praying and he's asking God, so where, where, where should I go? And he has a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come help us. 
And so immediately, Paul and his crew head to Macedonia. They end up in Philippi, which is the far southeast uh, part of Macedonia. And as they're there, they're looking for a man, a man who's wanting help. And they end up finding this women's group. They go down to the river because if if there was uh, uh, in a city, there wasn't a Jewish synagogue. The Jewish people would meet for prayer down by the river. So they end up down by the river and this women's group is meeting there. And it says in verse 13 that they sat down and spoke to the women who met there. And that's when they meet this woman, Lydia. There in verse 14, who was Lydia? We're told that she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. So Lydia is this wealthy businesswoman. She's from Thyatira, which was the center of the purple dye business. And purple dyed goods were the in thing at that particular time in the Middle East. And purple dyed goods were very, very expensive. So Lydia is this gal who's doing really, really good for herself. I mean, if you think about her, think, think classy, think put together, think she's driving a Mercedes Benz, you know, E350. She's this gal. She's driven. She's brilliant. She's well-known and she's well-respected, but she's also religious. She's a seeker. She's not a follower of Christ yet, but we're told here that she worshiped God which probably means that she had converted to Judaism. And so Paul engages her in a spiritual conversation. Notice verse 14. It says there that God opens her heart to heed the things spoken of by Paul. And that word heed is really, really interesting because it describes someone with an addiction or someone with a craving. And so what's happening here to Lydia is she's listening to Paul and she's craving to hear more of the word of God. Her eyes are open. Her heart is open. She believes what Paul is telling her about Jesus. And so she says in verse 15, you guys need to come to my house and you need to share with my family. And she just doesn't want them to leave. And this is the thing I love about new believers is they crave the word. I mean, they just can't get enough. And that was Lydia. She's like, I don't want you guys to go. I want you guys to stay here. So conversion number one is this gal, Lydia, a lady who had everything going for her, but she still has this void in her heart, this emptiness in her heart. Maybe that describes you today. Maybe you're a person who feels like you have everything going, everything you've desired, but, but you're not happy. You realize there's a void in your heart. Let's look at conversion number two. We see in verse 16, it says, now it happened As we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination, that means she was possessed by a demon, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. Now this girl is the opposite of Lydia. Lydia was a lady who that was good at making profit in her business. This girl was used for profit by others. Most scholars uh, say that she was probably in her mid teens and she has a demon and she's a slave which means she is both a spiritual and economic captive and Paul and his crew cross paths with her on their way to the prayer meeting 
And she probably is, you know, out there, she's a fortune teller. She's like, hey, you want me to, you know, tell your fortune? And they're like, no thanks. And, and, and so, you know, they, they move on. They don't engage her, but she ends up following them. And as she's following them, she starts crying out, saying, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they're bringing us the way of salvation. And verse 18 tells us that she did this for many days. But I love what it says next. It says, but Paul greatly annoyed. I love that. That tells us that the Bible is not made up. You know, it doesn't say, and Paul, full of great compassion. Or Paul tenderly stroked her hair and said, oh, daughter of Eve. No, it says Paul was annoyed. In fact, it says he was greatly annoyed. Who here has ever been greatly annoyed? Okay. It's like Paul is ticked off here, but the question is why? I mean, this is like free advertisement, right? She's like following them and she's saying, you know, these guys are servants of the most high God, bringing us the way of salvation. You need to listen to them. Why is Paul getting upset? Well, Jesus, when the demons, people that were demon possessed did the same thing to him. They'd cry out. The demons would say, this is Jesus, the son of God. And he would command, he would silence them. So why were Jesus and Paul so against this free advertisement that was going on? And I think the reason is very, very simple. They didn't want the gospel message promoted by an agent of Satan. Because you see, it clouds the message. It muddles the message. It's like today when a celebrity whose lifestyle is the complete opposite of a follower of Jesus wins an award and gets up and says, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It like it muddles the message. It doesn't help. And so Paul is like, hey, he's greatly annoyed. And he turned and said to the spirit. Now I want you to notice that, that he turned and said to the spirit, Paul addresses the spirit, not the woman. And said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. And I want to just pause here and say, so we need to understand. Demons are real. Like I said earlier, demons are behind what's happening in Israel right now. Demons are real. People, real people still get demon possessed. But in Jesus, we who know the Lord, we have authority over demonic beings. Why do I say that? Well, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, we're told this of Jesus. He, speaking of Jesus, disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. In the New King James Version, rulers and authorities are described as principalities and powers. And Paul in Ephesians 6 tells us exactly Exactly what those are when he said this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, our battle isn't human, but against principalities and powers. And who are they? Against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. He's talking about demonic beings. Now, one thing we need to understand as Christians, you, you can't get demon possessed. Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. So a demon can't live inside of you. And you need to know that. You need to understand that. 
You know, the Bible says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So the Holy Spirit is living inside of you. A demon can't live inside of you. But we as Christians also need to understand that in this spiritual battle that we are fighting in, and we are in a spiritual battle, and we are fighting against demonic forces, but we're not fighting for victory, but we fight from a place of victory because Jesus has already won the battle. Jesus has disarmed them. And the Bible says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Christians have power over demonic beings in the name of Jesus. And so that's what Paul does here. He deals with these, this demon head on in the name of Jesus. And this gal was delivered. It was a radical transformation. And notice what happens next though, verse 19. But when her master saw it, they rejoiced and turned to Jesus too. That's what we'd like it to say, right? No, it says, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. So these men had no joy in seeing this woman get set free by the power of Jesus. This woman was irrelevant to them. She meant nothing to them. They didn't care about her. All she was to them was a means of making money. And now their hope of profit was gone. In the same way today, it would be like a gangbanger coming to the Lord or a drug dealer coming to the Lord or a sex worker coming to the Lord. And their handlers would be upset because their source of profit and making money would be disrupted. So these guys are upset and they take action against Paul and Silas. Look at verse 20. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. I want you to note that phrase. Because you know what? There are people in our city who make that same accusation against us here at Calvary Vista. Those people... At Calvary Vista, they exceedingly trouble our city. Why do they say that? Because they know that we teach the Bible here. And they know that the Bible contradicts their lifestyle choices. And so they're like, those guys, those Christians at Calvary Vista, they trouble our city. And it doesn't matter to them. That every single Wednesday, we have 200 to 250 cars that come through our parking lot in our food distribution partnership that, that we are, are having and doing. And every single week, those 250 cars that come through our parking lot get their trunk filled up with food that, to, to go home and bless their families with. It makes no difference to them that, that we are doing that, nor does it make any difference to them that every single Friday we have 25 to 30 homeless people that come here in our partnership with Humanity Showers, and they come here to get a shower, they get a shave, they get a haircut, they get food, and they get told about Jesus. That doesn't matter to them. Nor does it matter that every single day we offer free counseling for people that come through our doors, that none of that matters to them. All that matters to them is that we teach the word of God and we're encouraging people to live by the word of God and they can't handle that because it doesn't line up with their lifestyle choices. You know, it's been said that men do not reject the Bible because the Bible contradicts itself. No, they reject the Bible because the Bible contradicts them. And that's what's happening here. 
in Philippi, when this young girl gets delivered and saved, their means of making money is affected, and so they want Paul and Silas thrown out of town. And that leads us to consider conversion number three, a hard-hearted Roman soldier. Let's pick it up in verse 22. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Now, this is all for helping a demon-possessed gal get set free. Verse 24, having received such a charge, this jailer put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet with stocks. Here we see person number three, the Philippian jailer. Who was he? Jailers were often highly decorated Roman soldiers who, as a retirement gift, were given jails to run. So this is an older, hardened, part of the ruling class there in Rome, and probably a guy that was very, very cynical. He puts Paul and Silas into the inner prison. The inner prison was the part of the prison that was reserved for the worst offenders. So that's where he puts them in this place. It's for the worst guys. It was cold, it was dark, it was damp, and it was disgusting because all of the fecal matter would run down into the inner part of the prison. And that's where Paul and Silas are placed. But look at what they're doing, verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. The other prisoners are like, who are these guys? Who sings at midnight in the inner prison after they've been beaten? Who does that? I'll tell you who. Men who know that Jesus is still on the throne. Men and women who know that Jesus loves them. Men and women who know that they have not been forsaken. Men and women who know that Jesus still has a plan for their lives. So Paul and Silas are singing in the midnight hour. And look at verse 26. I love this. And suddenly, everybody say suddenly. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosed. You thought Elvis wrote Jailhouse Rock. No, no, no. It was Paul and Silas. All right. Verse 27, and the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. You see, in those days, if you lost a prisoner, you paid for it with, their, with your life. So this guy, the prison gets shaken. He wakes up. He sees the doors open. He thinks everybody's, you know, gone. And he thinks, okay, I'm going to get killed. So I'm going to just take my life. Verse 28. But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, serves you right, you Roman pig. No, that's not what he said. No, he yells out, do yourself no harm for we are all here. And then he called for a light and he ran in and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That right there is the greatest question that any man, any woman can ask. What must I do to be saved? 
And the answer is so simple. Look at verse 31. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Isn't that awesome? So simple. What do I need to do to be saved? Believe in Jesus. Embrace what Jesus did for you. Embrace the reality that Jesus left heaven and came to this earth so he could die on the cross to pay the price for your sins, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. There's an empty tomb in Israel today that he was buried in. He, and it's, it, it's empty because he's risen and he's alive and he gives life to anyone who puts their trust in him. And so it's that simple. You go from being in that moment when you put your faith in Jesus, you go from being saved or lost to being saved. You go from being in a place of danger to being rescued. You go from being on your way to hell to on your way to heaven. Now, I want you to note there's a time gap between verse 31 and verse 32. And what happens in this time gap is this jailer takes Paul and Silas home to meet his family. So he goes home, he like wakes everybody up. Hey, you got to meet these two guys that I just met. We read in verse 32. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and he washed their stripes. So this hard-hearted Roman soldier has this complete change of heart. And now he's washing their wounds. And immediately he and his family were baptized We saw earlier, Lydia was baptized. Why? Baptism, as was said earlier, is what you do not to become a Christian, but after you become a Christian, that it's part of that outward proclamation that you're saying, and we're having a baptism next week. You're saying, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Jesus has transformed my life. That's what is happening here. And now when he had brought them into the house and set food before them, he rejoiced having believed in God with all of his households. So we see this radical transformation that takes place in this hard-hearted, cynical Roman soldier. His heart is softened. He believes in Jesus. And so does his whole family. It's such a beautiful illustration of the transforming work of Jesus. So here we have these three stories of, of three people that get saved. Now, here's what's interesting. I'm sure there were a lot of people that got saved in Philippi when Paul was there. So the question is, why does the Holy Spirit record these three stories? And when you're reading the Bible, that's what you always want to be asking yourself. Okay, why are these three, or why is this included? Why is this story? What, what does the Lord want me to glean from this? Why are these three stories in here? And I think there's at least two reasons that I want to share with you today. Number one is to show us something about the gospel. And number two, to show us different ways that people are reached. And I want to consider both of these in the remainder of our time this morning. So what do these stories tell us about the gospel? Simply this, that the gospel is for everybody. It's for everybody. These are three completely different kinds of people. You have a rich, religious gal and Lydia. You have a demon-possessed slave girl and a hard-hearted, cynical Roman jailer. You know what that tells us? 
There are no types in Christianity. You know, some people say, I'm just not one of those Christian types. There isn't any types. The gospel is for everyone. That's the beauty of the body of Christ is there isn't a type. All of us, there's so many different testimonies represented right now in this room. And it blows my mind. That's one of the things I love about the Thanksgiving Eve service is we get to hear these incredible testimonies of how Jesus touched somebody's life. And in our church family, there are some of you who you came to Christ, you grew up in the church, you came to Christ as a young person. That's your testimony. You think, oh, I don't have a testimony. I I got saved when I was really, really young. No, that is your testimony. Your testimony is that Jesus saved you from the pit. He got a hold of you before you got into it. Others of you, though, he saved you out of the pit. And in our church family, we have people who were addicted to drugs, addicted to alcohol, addicted to sex. We have people in our church family who spent time in jail and some who spent time in prison and some were who in bondage to the most horrific of things. And Jesus has set them free. It's beautiful. It's awesome. We have people in our, in our church family whose their God was money. It was greed, and they were pursuing it with everything that they had, and they did well in making it, but, but they weren't happy, they weren't fulfilled, and they realized that, that they needed Jesus. All different types of people in our church family, some who, like Lydia, came out of a religious background, who were very, very good, moral, upstanding people. We have that and everything in between in our church family. So this, this story reminds us, these three conversions, that the gospel is for everyone. As we're told in the book of Hebrews that Jesus saves to the uttermost, or some say the guttermost, he can save anyone. No one is beyond his love and beyond his reach. But this story also gives us insight into how Jesus reaches people. Take, for instance, Lydia. She thinks of herself as a religious person. So how do you engage a religious person? Well, you engage her the way that Paul does in a spiritual discussion. There's a lot of people in our community that are like Lydia, that fit her profile. Some of them have a Christian background, but they're not believers in Jesus. Some have a religious background. Some of them are, are active in church. Some of them are not. But whatever the reason is, they're open to having a spiritual conversation. And the best way to reach them is to expose them to God's word. How do you do that? Well, one simple way is invite them to church. Just invite them to church. You meet somebody, you work with somebody who is somewhat spiritual, invite them to come to church with you. Or ask them this simple question, hey, do you have any spiritual beliefs? I'd like to hear what they are. I had a conversation like that years ago with a gal, a waitress, right across the street at that restaurant that used to be there. It looked like an Easter egg. Um, And one day I was in there and and there was like only one other customer. And so I asked her that question. Hey, do you have any spiritual beliefs? She sat down at the booth and we started talking. And after about a half an hour, she ended up giving her life to Christ. Started coming to church here. That simple question. Hey, do you have any spiritual beliefs? Engaging in people who have some spiritual 
mindedness, that are interested in spiritual things, to engage them in a conversation that might lead to saying, hey, you know what, I've enjoyed talking with you. I got this book. Why don't we read this book together? But here's the key. Here's what you need to understand is you always want to make sure with that person that you're seeking to move them from religion, because religion is man's way to reach God, to relationship. That's what the Bible teaches, that God reached down to us by sending his son, Jesus. I love that phrase in verse 14. It says that the Lord opened her heart. That reminds us, friends, that salvation is a work of God. He's the one who opened her heart. He's the one who did the convincing. He's the one who moves on hearts. You know, it's been said that effective evangelism, you only have to believe two things. One, that salvation is of God. And number two, that faith comes by hearing. You see, believing that salvation belongs to God takes the pressure off of me. But believing that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God motivates me to share the truth. And all of us can do that. So how do you reach a person like Lydia, a seeker? You engage them in a spiritual conversation. What about a person like this demon-possessed slave girl? How do you engage somebody that is just bound by darkness? And I tell you this very carefully. I think it's noteworthy. Again, Paul did not engage her right away. He waited several days. It's hard to talk to somebody who is not in their right mind. It's hard to talk to somebody who's under the influence of someone or something. You have to very, very prayerfully and carefully pick your spots in talking to them. And when Paul finally does engage her, he engages the darkness head on. And I have found that's the best way to deal with people that are bound by darkness is to address the darkness that they're in head on. Because you can't reason with them. You just have to say you are bound and blinded by by this darkness, but Jesus loves you and he can set you free. Because it's reminding ourselves, he's the only one only one who can open their eyes. What about the hard-hearted, cynical person like the Philippian jailer? What's the best way to engage them? The answer is to simply live before them. Let your life speak. Let them see you in all seasons, both good and bad, great and hard. I mean, think about this. What impacted this guy? It was that Paul and Silas are singing praises to God in the midnight hour in the inner prison. That's, that's what impacts him. What impacts this guy? It's the fact that when the prison doors opened up, that they didn't leave. That they didn't bail when they could have. In other words, the way that they were living and how they reacted to their situation is what impacted him. And that's the best way to impact hard-hearted, cynical people is just to live before them to live your faith out in a recent survey by barnum they they noted that 84 percent of the americans surveyed said that they know at least one person who claims to be a committed christian however in the same survey they said only 15 percent of those who were pulled felt that the lifestyle of those who claim to be committed Christians was different from unbelievers. So 84% of them say, oh, I know somebody that claims to be a committed Christian, but only 15% says they actually live differently. 
than non-believers. It was Brennan Manning who said this, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is that Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyles. That is what the unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. But you know, cynical unbelievers, they watch us. You know that? They watch us. And you know when they watch us the most? They watch us the most in our difficulties. They watch us the most when we're going through tough times. You know, when, when you get the raise or you get the promotion and you're like, praise God, I got the raise. They're not impressed by that. They're actually annoyed by that. Because to them, getting a raise and a promotion is about hard work. It's not about God. So that doesn't compute with them. They, they don't understand that when you say that sort of thing. They're not drawn to you in your times of blessings. They're drawn to you when they see you in a situation where you could cut a corner and you don't. That speaks to them. This jailer was blown away that Paul and Silas didn't bail. And skeptics are drawn to you when they see you in a tragedy, in a difficult time, still praising God. It's like when you lose the job and they're like, okay, let's see if he praises God now. You get diagnosed with the cancer and like, okay, let's see if they praise God now. That's when we get the attention of the skeptic when, listen, they can see you in a situation that is really, really difficult and they see the fear that speaks to them. Okay, they're, they're human. They're just like me. But they also see the peace because they recognize And they begin to recognize then that there's something or there's someone holding them up. That's what impacts them. So the best way to impact a skeptic is to live before them. So this passage, first of all, teaches us that the gospel is for everyone. Secondly, it gives us insight into how to reach people. People like Lydia spiritually interested in spiritual things, engage them in conversation. People like this demon-possessed girl bound by darkness, address the darkness. People like the cynical Roman uh, soldier, you live before them. Now, I want to finish this up today, looking at verse 35. Just real, real quick, two, two things I want to point out. Notice it says, And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers, saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported the, these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. And Paul said, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now, do they put us away, put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. What's Paul doing here? Paul is standing for his rights. And I want you to note this. Notice verse 38. And so the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, because it was against the law to beat and imprison a Roman without just cause. And then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. And so they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them, and then they departed." This is a great illustration for us in this day and age of our need 
to stand for our rights. And we need to do that as Christians. We need to know that we have rights. And Paul here is standing for his rights. He, he doesn't take it to the extreme, but he's letting them know that he has rights and his rights were violated. And you know, in, in our day and age, let me give you an example. One of the things that liberal people like to bring up to Christians to keep us from living our faith and sharing our faith is they'll quote the separation between church and state. And they like to quote that to say, you know, that's why we shouldn't have Bible studies in schools and, and prayer in schools and prayer in the word. separation of church and states. But did you know the separation of church and state, that amendment in our Constitution was put in there by our founding fathers. Listen to me close. Not to keep the church out of state matters like schools but to keep the state out of church matters. That our founding fathers were basically saying, we don't want the state, the government, interfering with the mission and the purpose of the church. That's why that was written. But today it gets so twisted and convoluted. It's important that we know our rights and stand for our rights. So as we close today, I'm going to ask the band to come up right now. Two questions. What do you need to do to be lost? Nothing. Nothing. You know, some people say, oh, you know, I like Jesus. I'm just not a Christian. Jesus said, there's no neutral ground. He said, you're either for me or against me. You don't have to do anything to be lost. What do you have to do to be saved? Believe in Jesus. Put your faith and your trust in Jesus, that Jesus was who he said he was, that Jesus left heaven and came to this earth to give his life, to pay the price for our sins, and rose again from the dead, and he lives today, and he's coming back one day, but he lives today to give life to anyone who would put their faith and trust in him. We're told in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Amen?